hurt, my mind is a warning Pray to the one you're relying I've been wandering all day I tried to be fine, but I can't be The noise in my mind wouldn't leave me I tried to get by, but I'm burning I'm behind my mind to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on WBAI in New York, uh, New York City. In studio with my co-host, the Dr. lovely... Dr. Cassandra Raphael. Happy Monday, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, and, and we have today a very, very special guest who's just getting his mic set the way that it needs to be, but it's Dr. Anthony Thomas, a, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who is based in Seattle, Washington. And... Um, to open up the show, we had a little. We had actually two songs, two songs. So the first song that we heard a little bit of was Thames, which is Free Mind, uh, off of her For Broken Ears album, which was released in 2020. And that's 
just a song about um, kind of escaping a lot of the negative thoughts that's in one mind, one's mind in pursuit of peace and joy. And that kind of feeds into a little bit of the conversation that we're going to have with Dr. Anthony Thomas. Um, yeah, and, and then we heard a little bit of a second song, which oh, was yeah. Anthony's selection. So I'll let Dr. Thomas explain that a little. Yeah, please just call me Anthony while we're on. That is fine. Uh, that's uh, Michael Kiwanuka. That's from his third album, Kiwanuka. Um, won, won an award anyways, I think best rock album. It's not really rock, and you could tell by listening to it. It's a mixture of things. But he's a uh, uh, Nigerian heritage, but British national, and he's got a few like really beautiful songs. I mean, that one... You can interpret it many ways. It's a bit about love and a bit about trying to find yourself and um, not allowing the kind of the stories that were told around us kind of bring us down, but to kind of be uh, have a sense of yourself. So I, I like to start with that. Appropriate for a psychoanalyst. Yeah, <laughs> sense to find oneself, and also, I, I should have mentioned I didn't that Thames is also of uh, Nigerian origin. So. A little bit of a Niger flavor to start the show off this afternoon. A little Afrobeat, Afrofuturistic uh, influence. Yes. Um, But I've known uh, Anthony, we're on first name basis today. Mm -hmm. Um, Please. uh, Almost as long as I've known uh, Cassandra, uh, like 12 years or something like that, maybe more. Uh, Because you are a Seattle-based psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, but uh, with your medical education down the street here in Brooklyn, which is where I met both of you at SUNY Downstate. uh, we've introduced ourselves on the radio before, uh, Cassandra and I, but uh, tell us just a little bit, Anthony, uh, who are you, and tell us about the clinical work that we do just to get a sense of who you are. Sure. So um, my name's Anthony Thomas. I'm a MD psychiatrist. I've done further studies in psychoanalysis uh, to kind of enhance my own understanding of human mind, how we think, how we feel. Uh, I currently am in private practice in Seattle, Washington, and I did some uh, my training at uh, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. I had some pretty strong mentors there who were psychoanalytically oriented. And basically, I've kind of moved from, I, I do some medic, uh, prescribing of medications, but a lot of um, psychotherapy. And I always found that you know, whatever medications you take, those can help you. Those can help uh, diminish some of the symptoms and some of the the feelings we're experiencing. But uh, the way you see yourself in the world and in life can can only be changed so much with medication. And that's where a lot of psychotherapy comes in. Excellent. And uh, when we spoke recently, um, and I think Cassandra can chime in as well, one of the kind of the themes of your experience is that um, – and maybe this is having to do with a change in the culture around men and masculinity and therapy and, and mental health and things like this. Um, and, you know, our show is called Trauma Code. And I think key to understanding a lot of that is um, this idea of trauma, which is different for you, right, than for me. Trauma for me means, you know, someone shot in the chest or someone's spleen is busted up after a, a car wreck or a fall. Uh, so tell us just a little bit in your experience um, and what context, what does trauma mean for you, trauma to the psyche? Yeah, so that's a, a good question because I think there's a colloquial definition of trauma. There's the more psychotherapeutic definition of trauma, and I don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but we tend to think of, you know, injuries. And I, you know, I did trauma stuff when I was in medical school and then afterwards. And then we also think of um, 
major traumas like someone being you know overtly threatened you know have their life overtly threatened um a car accident and being afraid you might die you know in that moment uh but we also from a psychotherapeutic and specifically from an analytic standpoint any any instance any experience that can somehow um damage one's ego or uh lessen one's uh, esteem for their self, for themselves, can be considered a trauma. So, so, so help us understand, um, ego is a term that's used an awful lot, but maybe everyone doesn't have the same definition of it. Okay. So when you say that, w- what do you mean by ego, and what do you mean by damage to the ego? Yeah, so I mean, th- there's a lot of sp- specific terms to the field, and uh, I mean, to go back, you know, a little bit of historical perspective. I mean, it started with Sigmund Freud and his sense you have the, the ego is kind of like who you think you are and you have your super ego, which is kind of like the voice in your head that tells you this is right, this is wrong. And then you have the id, which is more your primal instincts. I mean, that's a very lay way of describing it. I'm sorry to interrupt. What I always understood about the super ego in looking at myself and trying to have some insight is it's a voice that I imagine being projected from other people who are judging me. Is that not the super ego? Uh, sort of. I mean, it's kind of, it starts off as, you know, you believe it's that kind of, uh, it's, it's a concept. It's obviously not an actual, an actual thing you can locate in the brain, but this kind of overarching kind of you can think of it as a parental self the right. the beings who have some sort of authority who are suggesting that you should do this and you ought to do that and you have yourself self which would be like your ego and so those external voices may they start out as external and then they gradually become internal and um so the, the things people tell you you ought to do you know early on become the things you tell yourself you ought to do as you get older and that's kind of a rough kind of description of it and um, so anything that kind of, you know, even things that seem innocuous that could upset you or make you feel bad, it could even be something very positive. Like you could be, you know, encouraged to do really well in school, and that's a good thing. But having a, this expectation of who you want to now be in life can go against, you know, your natural inclinations or some other ideas you may have about yourself and leaving people feeling, um, oh, somehow I need to do more or I haven't done enough or I've failed and that can leave people feeling troubled and it can lead to other you know greater problems and that's that's something that's very subtle and much less you know a, a very we would call that you know it's a very small trauma versus someone being literally abused like yelled at put down um uh, demeaned and you know you could consider that a a greater more intense trauma and Either way, all these things kind of accumulate, these micro-traumas, I call them, and lead to a certain way of one sees oneself or one way one sees the world and how they're able to navigate it. Right. I mean, we think a lot about, like, the, the macro-traumas, like the big things, the, the things that we maybe consider life-changing events. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those might be, quote, enough, right, or sufficient to change the way you view the world, but mm-hmm. we also have to not discount the possibility of small exchanges, smaller interactions, kind of having a cumulative effect on kind of how we interact with the world, how we see ourselves. And I think that that's kind of like... Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, those are, I, I you can, you don't have to stratify them, but to say like, that's maybe more important because you, you can imagine the particular, we're living in, we're right now in New York City, you have children growing up in areas where there is 
crime regularly mm-hmm. in their area. And that's something they kind of learn to live with. That's an expectation that, oh, I have to be um, vigilant about my surroundings because I could be harmed. Like those are very small traumas that are happening all the time. But, you know, that's very impactful compared to like a one-time episode. So taking this back to your work um, in um, therapy, what, how does this a trauma uh, affect people negatively? How is it kind of toxic? And, and what's the therapeutic value of, of that interaction that you have with them? Uh, so there's a number of things. I mean, one, depending on you know, what those traumas are specifically, but um, it could lead one, as I mentioned before, to have a certain view of themselves in the world and um you know part of the reason i even brought up that first song uh, by michael kiwanuka is this idea of like you're not the problem because a lot of people walk around thinking that they are the problem Mm -hmm. somehow they are a failed person or something's wrong with them and they um you know so they're that's impacted how they see themselves how they feel about themselves in, in the world and Specifically, I guess it may be helpful to have something more specific. Um, but someone who feels unable to succeed in a job and loses jobs or quits jobs, um, you know, with this sense of failure. In you have a lot of people who come from. You could come from an up, you know, a wealthy background. You could come from a more um, indigent background, but have this sense of like, I'm not going to be able to accomplish, you know, what's been expected of me. And it's that much harder for people like that to get employed, stay employed, you know, as a kind of a more concrete example of that. So, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about um, those expectations, how that fits into trauma. And, and we talked before kind of these themes of of uh, of shame or, or I'm, I'm not sure what the best way to put it. How does, how does that all come together? Um. So shame's an interesting one. I mean, that there's a whole sort of branch of psychology that really sp- deals specifically with shame and this um and as you mentioned as it talks speaks um uh, as referring to men in specifically um and this goes for anybody. Um but there are, you know, in our at least in modern American you know, culture. There's a lot of expectations as to how uh, a very narrow set of expectations of how a man is supposed to be in society. And if you're outside of that, suddenly you're not a man or you're not man enough. Um, you know, these ideas that you're supposed to have the answer, you're supposed to be strong, you're supposed to look a certain way. Um, and it, it does very much narrow the sense of how you're able to be in the world. You know, you have to be tall muscular, athletic, you know, and in, in a certain way, um, to be regarded as a successful man. Um, and a lot of people still subscribe to these ideas, although I feel like that's changing significantly, you know, in the last 10 years. Yeah. There's definitely been more discussion about, you know, acceptance and, um, in the absence of those discussions, absolutely one could feel, like they have to compensate in ways that historically are not necessarily very adaptive, um, you know, if they don't feel like they fit a particular mold. So as you point out, yes, I think that there has been much more discussion on inclusion and and 
especially in the field of mental health, we are, I think, turning our attention a lot more, like trying to find ways to um, encourage vulnerability mm -hmm. in men, which I don't think is one of the very stereotypical qualities ascribed to, you know, this, you know, this no air quotes man. Yeah, not yeah. at all. And that's, I, you know, this feeling that for you to be vulnerable would somehow take you out of that role as a man leads to this absence of vulnerability, right? which is kind of just the other side of the coin of intimacy. How are you close to somebody if you're never vulnerable? It makes that, you know, very difficult, if not impossible. Right. And so you have a lot of people who feel isolated or lonely and a lot of people resort to physical violence in mm -hmm. those cases. They don't have these other tools of using their mind using their words um, to express themselves and they express it physically. So people are concerned about why is there all this violence going on? And it's like you have all these people who are isolated and these aren't the only reasons for it, but this is part of it. People who feel isolated and feel unable to express themselves and, and are becoming violent in, um, in that. So I think this plays into some of what we're seeing today and um, it's just, it's everywhere. I mean, it's been everywhere, but I feel like we see even more of it today mm -hmm. um, than we did when we were growing up as kids. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, it's one of the things that I... Uh, sorry. To no, go you. ahead. I was going to say, it's one of the things that as a child psychiatrist, kind of, you know, working with teenagers and young adults that we, we have to focus on a lot, conflict resolution um, for, for kids that are kind of have rougher upbringings come from, uh, you know, areas that wouldn't let them be vulnerable, that vulnerable vulnerability is particularly regarded as, as weak because for them, vulnerability is not safe, you know? And, and I mean that in a very, like in the physical environment to be vulnerable in some settings, they just feel like it, what it, they're brought up to think that it's just not safe. But then when you're coming more to like an, an emotional, you know, interpersonal, um, Dialogue. If you can't achieve that, a certain amount of vulnerability, it's really kind of hard to actually have a sincere conversation with another person, particularly about feelings. Oh yeah. Oh certainly. And I I would argue that for a lot of those uh, people growing up in those circumstances, they didn't just feel it wasn't safe. It wasn't because people right. would utilize that to take advantage of you. And um, you really can't show that you know when you're working in an environment that's that's not cooperative. And particularly, I worked. I worked for a short while in one of the one of the jails, um, just in Philly. And to have a to engage an inmate in any meaningful way, I mean, they all have a reason to not share with you what's on their mind. So you already have kind of really limited what kind of engagement you're going to be able to have with that person to work through any of their issues. And they, most of the people I talked to had a lifetime of issues. Right. I mean, they had come from very troubled circumstances from, from they were born into troubled circumstances. Um, so this, it not only limits how you can relate to other people in your life, um, but it, it limits how you'd relate to a therapist and then you make any headway in that man. Right. right. And I can give you a quick example. There was one guy who came in and he was like, Oh, you know, I, I feel so bad. I, my family came here and I wanted to tell them all this stuff. But I, then when they got here, I couldn't tell them. And then they left and I felt upset with myself. It's like, all right, you have trouble being vulnerable. And, um, so I was just asking about his life. He's like, Oh, you know, where'd you grow up? Well, here, Oh, I grew up with my grandparents. Why? Well, my mom was on crack. So she wasn't really taking care of me. Where was your dad? 
he wasn't around. I don't really know him like that. I mean, that was as much as he could speak about it. And then he had subsequently been in juvenile detention and then back out. And so he had all these damaged relationships in his life of people who didn't treat him very well mm-hmm. or weren't able to. And that's how he learns to relate to people. <laughs> so yeah. so you're, you're working with somebody like that um, for an hour here and there. And, and I was going to say, well, you want to make sure not to give out uh, personal health details, but that's such a common story, what you've just told, that there's yeah. no way to know who you're talking you about. You wouldn't. That's why I can say that. You know, it could have been anybody except that, you know, you know, I was in Philly. But I mean, there's there's millions of people between here and there. So, you know, but um, and that's another thing is being this is a whole nother topic. But this uh, the confidentiality that's so important, because without that, I mean, forget vulnerability if you're going to. Let the secrets out. So it's um, it's a very intimate relationship, actually, even just being in, you know, chronic therapy with somebody because they're telling you very important things about themselves that they don't normally share. And you do need to, in some sense, have you need to have empathy for that person. And you, it's hard to have empathy for everybody for every issue. No one does. And to identify with it to a degree where you're like, yes, this isn't just a, your problem. This is something I could see happening to anybody, even myself, if if I were placed in similar circumstances. You know, you kind of wonder what would I end up doing mm-hmm. or where would I be if if I had these kinds of things going on? Yeah, and, and I'll say working, uh, the work I used to do more in uh, Baltimore and against violence, you know, a lot of that was working with not only the uh, survivors or the family of the fallen, but also the shooters, engaging them, which wasn't necessarily my role. But what I learned from people who took on that challenge was learning to, uh, when you saw people that are acting on a certain way, not ask what's wrong with you, but recognizing what have you been through to get to this point. Um, and then trying to think of what a future looks like, understanding that the past that has shaped our present. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's so much energy put into helping survivors of these, you know, these episodes. And you got to think, well, who, the people, the perpetrators of them, they need help too. And they're, they're harder to love, that's for sure. But until you deal with that, it's going to be a very difficult situation trying to eliminate or, or prevent these things from happening. And, you know, some people would disagree with you, but I don't think any of us, this is a very, very, very small fraction of people who are born with some sort of ill will in them. It right. comes from outside. That's and, my thought when I hear you guys it. talking about this. I'm thinking hurt, you know, I don't know if this is too broad or too kind of like generic, but hurt people hurt people. And mm-hmm. I feel like this is particularly true because I, I work with, I work with children. So, you know, uh, even if they may have done something untoward, their stories are sometimes really hard mm-hmm. and 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 where they're coming from and and what they have to um what they have to go through and how they even got to be you know my patients the stories are rough and and oftentimes these are you know when they're doing something it's like a, it's like a survival skill mm-hmm. you know um yeah i just wanted to add that so we talk a lot about empathy and this is a conversation that that anthony and i have had um and we think a lot about empathy as what kind of being able to relate to somebody else's like what uh, narrative mm-hmm. and kind of imagining yourself as them. Um, 
and we, Anthony and I have also talked about, you know, kind of identifying with somebody else's reality. But as uh, mental health clinicians, we think a lot about one's lived experience. So how that reality, whatever that reality is, came to be for them is like a sum of their small, you know, of their daily lived experiences mm -hmm. that kind of make them view the world a certain way, that kind of make them move in the world a certain way. Um, and, and, and that's what we're dealing with in therapy. So one of the things that is, um, I don't know, I want to say a common misconception about therapy is that, you know, you're going to come in and just want to talk to us. You won't. <laughs> you know, we're strangers. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we're strangers. And you do have to, I mean, ideally, if, if you don't come in ready to be vulnerable, it takes, it does really take fostering a relationship to kind of get you to a place where you can share one thing. And sometimes that one thing can open you know, Pandora's box, like doors and doors of information will just suddenly become open if we kind of hit the right nerve. But oftentimes you give us a little bit and we work with what we get that day. And then you come back next week and we do a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And some days, you know, you feel like there wasn't much, like it wasn't very productive. But at the end of the, you know, in the long term, you know, it's 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 a relationship really that you are forming with your therapist. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we get to know just, you know, as you speak and as as you kind of share what your lived experiences are, we get to know kind of what are the things that might be holding you up? Are there certain patterns that we recognize that maybe, you know, the client doesn't recognize? Yeah, and I, you know, this theme of micro trauma and even, I think we, we mentioned the other day this term microaggression, mm -hmm. which is a form of very, you know, small, kind of innocuous at times tra trauma, but specifically, you know, focus on racial and ethnic identity. Right. But um, that, just as you said, your little bits of your lived experience that kind of make up the your life day by day, that's what these things are. There's all these just small things that are happening to us every day all the time, and uh, they create a person, or they, they are a person in a way, in a sense. And working through those things is a... You know, we tend to want these big changes and, you know, we're going to do this one thing and we'll tweak this one thing and it'll fix everything. And it's like, I wish it were like that. Right. But it's always this little bits here and there and you, you hit some big things now and then, but it's a constant work. Well, one of the things that you've said before to me about um, your therapeutic approach um, is that if you can teach people to be insightful, like some people will respond instinctively to mm -hmm. things. If you can teach people to be insightful about what they're feeling and why, what they're motivated to do um, and why, and then think about what the consequences of that would be, especially if it's something lashing out, mm -hmm. um, that that can, that can be transformative in how someone understands themselves and their behavior. It can. I mean, there is a, 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 the idea that we all have kind of underlying thoughts that we're not aware of that are going all the time and they motivate our, you know, more conscious thoughts and our actions. And we kind of end up in these patterns of behavior that we're not even sure about, you know. Um, and a simple one that you may not know is someone who's very successful, maybe even successful. Um, but they're working all the time and that leaves them not engaged with other areas of their life. Right. Um, I think that's a pretty classic one. Um, and you might say, well, you know, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This seems to be working out. Why am I, why am I not um, more in tune with, you know, the loved ones in, in my life? And it can be something you're, you never even noticed. 
um, about yourself. Um, and when people start to realize that, you know, whatever they're seeking um, isn't being served by the actual actions they're taking, they actually, they, they realize I'm not actually seeking um, whatever, wealth or success, I'm seeking this idea of myself that I need to be this other thing um, that I'm not. You can when you become more aware of that, it's, it becomes a little easier to let that go. It doesn't change every now. Like suddenly now, I'm not going to do it anymore. But it gives you a little more space to. All right, I'm, can I do things differently? Right. And so that is an important thing that happens there. And so it coming to that realization is something one kind of has to do on their own. I can't just tell you that. Um, and I and in my own work, I I try not to be prescriptive. Like you should you unique you, you can do this and not that like. Right. I don't find that to be helpful, um, but helping you know asking people questions or or noticing things about how they engage with me, and uh, pull out those realizations, and allow them to change, and then also having that relationship of someone who is listening, because a lot of people don't have anyone really listening to them, and you know, and and especially some of the patients, particularly patients who have grown up under tougher circumstances. There's not a lot of real listening that they've experienced. There's people kind of hearing what they're saying and then doing whatever they want to do. But to have someone really pay attention and be aware of what they might be experiencing is 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 a is an important experience to be able to, to have with somebody. Mm-hmm. And you can provide that in a therapy in a limited way in a therapeutic circumstance. Yeah, you mentioned um, microaggression specifically, and it's. Well, I actually just want to say microaggressions is a term coined by Dr. Chester Pierce, who who's also a black psychiatrist, and you're joined by two of them today. Yes. Um, in case you were wondering. Would you say? I'm, I'm, not a psychi- I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yes, Dr. Pierce, I'm not a psychiatrist. Um, but um, I, I want to add that I think uh, Anthony mentioned how it's the ways in which you uh, kind of receive uh I guess interactions pretty regularly or how you experience the world pretty pretty regularly that may you may not really be in control of that it's more reflection of how how you're perceived mm-hmm. um but also it's microaggressions we shouldn't forget the lack of representation like not seeing yourself in a certain space is also you know a microaggression does an environment look like you know it's inviting to you can it accommodate what your needs are um also also microaggressions and so when when we're talking about something that's like you know what's not there, it, it feels like it becomes even more abstract. But it it can make you feel a kind of way if you don't feel represented. That's people you know have been saying a lot. Oh, representation matters, and we hear it a lot when people are talking about government and politics. Representation matters, um, and it does because not seeing anybody who looks like you might f- make you feel like what you need doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, and that can also impact how you interact with the world. Yeah, and I would say you know that. That is that is a big deal because it's it's very it's insidious and it is more abstract. And I do tell people this um, in the limited supervision I've done is, you know, fo- no, try to be aware of the empty space, like kind of the negative of the photograph, like what's missing, mm-hmm. what is this person not saying or not talking about, and you can imagine someone who has no one in their family has gone to college. Now, I they have TV, you know. They know it's a thing, but it's a less, a far less uh, easy thing to imagine oneself doing when you don't have anyone in your own circle who's done that. And you're like, well, 
how is that? But you can imagine a more extreme experience that you mm-hmm. haven't been involved in. And it starts to make more sense that what's what's not common to you could be common to somebody else, and, and it becomes real. And like a quick example, prior to college, I'd never been on a plane. And I'd been up and down the East Coast, but never been on a plane. And I was like, what? I went to college. All these people were like, oh, I'm going to fly here. I have my passport. I'm like, passport? Why do you have a passport? Like, who? Where are you going? Yeah, I know. Like, you guys are pretty well-traveled <laughs> folks out here. Um, and it just seemed like a whole it was just outside of my scope i hadn't even really thought about it that much but to other people i met it was like completely normal and they actually thought it was odd that i hadn't flown anywhere and now i look back and i think it was odd. (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of funny i mean not to get too personal but that's a part of you that like that's a thing that i kind of really associate with you is kind of being curious about new places and i made up for lost time you know i've been i've been working at it um (laughs) But it, it, I hadn't done much uh, traveling before, you know, age eighteen, and and um, and I actually, you know, knew a lot of people who who had not, um, and I was able to find myself in circles with people who had, and surround myself with that, and it expanded my world in a big way. So it can do that for anybody, you know, in in any level. And uh, you are listening to Trauma Code on WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald with my lovely co-host in studio. Dr. Cassandra Rafael, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, we have our guest today, Dr. Anthony Thomas, SUNY Downstate graduate, uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And we've been talking about uh, basically trauma and therapy and the therapeutic uh, uh, value of, of engaging um, in one's uh, thoughts on a therapeutic relationship. Um, and one other topic I do want to get to before the end of the show is about the trauma of all these violent videos that have been coming out and, and uh, you know, through uh, just a passive consumer of news or social media is likely to have seen several um, videos of really traumatic events recently, specifically uh, the murder of Tyree Nichols by the Memphis Police Department. And I do want to get to that, uh, but before we do, we're going to have a musical break, and I want to give... Uh, Anthony, a chance to talk about uh, this next one, uh, and if if I can, uh, hopefully I'm not telling too many of your secrets, Anthony, but I think anybody who studies and practices medicine has like a crisis of confidence moment at some point along the path, and I remember uh, one in particular where, uh, Anthony, you were considering the question, was it really worth, you know, all of the time and energy and effort and dedication to pursue medicine and psychiatry and I, I asked you I was like well if you wasn't going to do that what were you going to do and I think you said you were going to be I was going to be an, an ethnomusicologist <laughs> which is like you're what are you doing in this field? I was like I was like bro look you've already sunk so much into learning this stuff you know you're a good person you can do good work and you could work a little bit and make enough money and do a little bit of that on the side and yeah, be happy and here so I am. here you are doing ethnomusicology <laughs> you, for right. us I want you to tell us about this next piece that you're going to play so actually this so I I'll bring back the ethnomusicology thing because basically I was interested in. Long story short, I saw a bunch of performers at this museum one time, and it was so cool. It's music I've never <laughs> heard in my life. And understanding, it's really about understanding of people through their music. It's kind of like anthropology, but through music. And now I'm understanding people through their stories. So I guess this is pretty good. But this is uh, this actually um, a, a musician from Britain also. And they've used all these rhythms, African rhythms. It's very obvious and some soul and funk sound. And 
I like this song a lot. It takes that tradition. Um, it gives it a little more modern flair, which is nice. And, you know, with all these, there's so much of our music that's like talks about this is happening, this negative thing is happening, and it kind of leaves it there. And I like to go a step beyond that and think, you know, well, how do I motivate myself, inspire myself, inspire other people? And this song talks about, you know, look up to the sky and see your light shining. I mean, that's how it starts. It's in French. I think this is French. And, um, <laughs> I'll let you guys know if it's French. Yeah, it sounds good. I thought and, it was Brazilian. Uh, it's a anyway, mix of things. What's, they what's put the all name of the in. author in the song? So the name of this is Skin Shape is the name of the artist. Uh, the song is Sualma, which means your soul. And, um, yeah, so... It harkens to that, and I, I wanted, knowing that some of the content today was heavy about violence, about people literally killing each other, I wanted to have something that was like, okay, how do you motivate yourself and inspire yourself in life? You know, there's more out there than just what we're doing to each other right here. That's what it's talking about. All right, take it away, Reggie. Yeah.
to Trauma Code on WBAI, and that was the song Sua Alma by Skin Shape, uh, and that was definitely Portuguese. Definitely. <laughs> the, the track featured... The track featured an, an artist named Alma, who I haven't had a chance to look up anything more about it. But excellent song. I was in the groove. I really appreciated yeah, that. It's a very that. beautiful song. <laughs> um, adding that to the library. You're, you're welcome. So, so we, uh, and of course, uh, we were talking on Trauma Code just before that musical break about uh, the recent release of violent videos. Um, I can think of a couple, but I think the one that resonated with the entire country at once was the Tyree Nichols. Uh, murder basically in Memphis by uh, at least five Memphis police officers. The whole situation caught on tape. Since uh, the tape was um, reviewed by the city, five of the officers were fired and then charged. And then now the video is is available and shown all over the place. Um, and so I wanted to think about and talk about with you the trauma of all these violent images and knowing about uh, these violent situations that, that we're exposed to, you know, even if just passively. Yeah. Uh, where to start? Okay. So uh, I I did watch – so it's funny we call it the video because it's like a compilation of like seven different videos. I mean there's literally two or three surveillance cameras – from afar that show kind of the whole mass of things going on and then there's a bunch of uh, body cams and I I watched I did not want to watch the whole thing but can, I did watch about 10 minutes of it can I just admit I have not watched the video um, I, I, I thought about it but you know I've read that there have already been trauma surgeons who have reviewed for example the first responders response yes um, and how they also failed um, Tyree yes. Nichols so Beyond some kind of quality, uh, I just didn't, you know, quality assessment or, or improvement. I didn't think that that it was that it was worth kind of consumption of that video um, personally. I, I mean, I also have not watched the video, but I've I've been on this. I'm not watching these videos tip for quite some time. Um, I remember, and I shared this with you before, uh, when the video of George Floyd uh, surfaced in 2020. At the time, I was in residency training in psychiatry. And somebody kind of put the video into this big group chat that we have, like with all the residents. And and I am, you know, at the time I was one of three, I think, black residents in the program. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to watch that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that you don't, you shouldn't have to see something like this happening to be outraged by it. the thought of it. Enough, it should should be enough. Like you should be able to hear that this happened, or just like it just be something unimaginable to you and feel outraged about the possibility of it. So I, I don't think I need to, to watch it to kind of cement how I feel about this. But I've, I'm opening up a little bit to other people's perspectives about the reasons why they do watch it. Yeah. You know, I personally wanted to... I was, I was uh, ambivalent about it for a bit, but then I did want to actually... I didn't want to just get my information without fully having it fleshed out or or understood by myself you know i didn't want to ha let it be hearsay so that's part of the reason i watched it i mean i did look at some articles that we have a civic duty to watch and to be aware of this i feel like you know right now we're in new york city i've lived in several large fairly cosmopolitan areas where there's quite a swath of people present in them and i've gotten to have a glimpse of different walks of life and much of the country doesn't live that way, and they can. It's 
by their circumstance or by their own thinking or the combination of those and other factors, it's easy for them to feel very removed from these things, mm-hmm. I believe, or for maybe not them, but for certain people to feel removed from these things and to not believe it. I mean, just to make it sound like this couldn't really be true. It's fiction or someone's making it up. Well, and, and uh, Cassandra, you point out that this is part of a tradition, basically a history um, uh, going back at least to uh, Rodney King of this kind of, of recorded and then sort of televised or broadcast um, violence, particularly police violence against black people in particular in this country. Right? And there are several other examples um, that we don't even have time to go into. Um, but and, and I do want us to think about what is the effect of visualizing this trauma. And of course, it has different weights, different circumstances for different people, different meanings. But one thing also maybe to think about is the same day that the Tyree Nichols video was released, I also passively just kind of consumed a video of Paul Pelosi being attacked with a hammer that was part of a uh, police body cam uh, video. And again, there was plenty of criticism that could be made of the lackadaisical police response in that um, particular event. But that was uh, just a private citizen assaulting an elderly, powerful, uh, in, in many ways, white man. Um, and, but the other reason that I, I chose to watch that video was, as you were saying, there was a lot of not only misinformation, um, but I think kind of malice, um, you know, uh, bad intentions, people with um, bad faith, including Elon Musk, who runs the Twitter uh, site now, mm-hmm. that I'm consuming some of this stuff on, right? Um, and uh, so... You know, what does that mean? That's sort of a different thing that happened at the same time, but it does have that same theme of the the passive consumption of trauma and violence and the fact that the bad faith actors aren't going to change what they say or think because of the video. Elon Musk didn't make no apology about, oh, I'm sorry, the lies I spread about Paul Pelosi. It was a mistake. Yeah. So speaking like, you know, he's not your average person you know it's hard to generalize things about him to the population you know you're one of the richest people in the world your life you know you want to talk about we're talking about things that don't seem like real to you and that someone else is experiencing that and that's normal for them like private jets like that's not part of my life you know but for some people like oh yeah what do you mean why is that weird um but uh to kind of go back to the point you know i i think yeah, watching these videos in itself and seeing violence is, is traumatic. It's considered traumatic, you right. know, DSM. But it is traumatic to see those things going on. And I, that can be damaging, you know, to the self, one sense of self or what they see, you know, what they feel the country or, you know, this place is doing to certain people. Um, and I, I feel like with all these things, there's always, you know, there's a plus and minus to all things. There's some risk. There's some benefit. And I could see the, you know, the Memphis police wanting to be fully transparent and, um, and like we're doing everything here. And because this comes in the wake of the George Floyd, Mm -hmm. you know, murder, which got so much attention, um, and you can look at the difference when, when it happened with Ronnie King, like, I mean, that was a serious video. I remember watching that as a kid and those cops all got off. And this time, you know, what is it, 20-some years later, you have protests all over the country, you know, supporting George Floyd. So now we've kind of – the paradigm has changed so much, and there's a, there's a much more increased um, onus on the police to, to, to police themselves. 
and people are watching for that. And so for them to want to release this video, I mean, it's not the same rules they're playing by that they were a few, just a couple of years ago. Yeah. I will say on a previous episode we had on Baynard Woods who wrote a book about a um, a gang of Baltimore City police officers who are running a criminal enterprise out of the um, headquarters of the Baltimore Police Department. Um, and I don't know if they ever beat someone to death, but there was a lot of really reckless behavior that led to other people's deaths mm-hmm. that was never uh, punished, and these officers were celebrated. And I just They ended up being taken down by a federal investigation that tripped over them by accident trying to look into drug dealers. Um, so I cannot imagine the Baltimore Police Department responding the way that the Memphis Police Department did um, with this particular killing of Tyree Nichols. So I think it does represent something important, um, and the question is, will that lead, you know, will they be attacked, the people that, that, that are clearing out Memphis Police Department? does it is it just a one-off, or does it represent a potential model for changing, you know, what's tolerated by a police department in its officers and its behavior with the public. Yeah, I, you know, it'd be hard for their, I, this is a big deal, so it'd be hard for them to not do something pretty, pretty drastic. I, I can't, I can't say what they'll do. I think one of the bigger things and be remiss if we didn't mention is that how, they were very quick to release feet and that's not something that's typically done, you know, at least not that I've noticed. And you have five black officers, mm. you know, in this case. So it kind of eliminates some of this. Is this um, a racially motivated crime? You know, you could say no. But, uh, you know, the narrative we tell in this story about black people doesn't just affect other people. It affects black people, too. And there's all right. sorts of stories of self-hatred and whatnot. But I think the- it serves more to kind of underscore problems with policing in general. Yes. And how... If you have an institution that is, well, a racist institution, and I'm not, you know, okay, let me just say, I, I'm going to speak very generally. If you have a racist institution, it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're kind of indoctrinated in the thing, you might not even be aware of the way that you're kind of being trained to view people, to view other people, people who are not like you. Yeah, or who are like you. Or I mean, who are like you. That right. is that is really it, and, and people don't want to – that's the harder thing to acknowledge, but those racist ideas – or any prejudice ideas, for that matter, affect anybody. And it does, you don't have to not look like that person or look at like that person to be affected by it. And we're bumping up against the end of the hour. But, you know, I do think it's an important concept uh, that it took me well into adulthood to understand racism is not about individual prejudice um, so much as it's about the institutions uh, of racism, uh, power of racism and structural racism. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of police departments – are in many ways racist institutions with racist histories. Uh, I can think of the Baltimore Police Department, its early leadership, a lot of Confederates involved in that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and unfortunately, bumping up against the end of the hour, uh, but I do want to thank you, uh, Anthony, uh, uh, Dr. Thomas, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And it's been a pleasure. And thank you, Dr. Raphael, as always. Oh, of course. I'm happy to be here in studio. Definitely happy to have a a friend of the show, a longtime friend, Dr. Anthony Thomas, with us. And we're going to uh, round out the show uh, with the, uh, with the song. Do you want to tell us about it in less than a minute, uh, Anthony? Uh, sure, <laughs> I can try to do that. Um, so this is uh, let me make sure I get his name right. Reginald Oma, Omas Mahmoud the Fourth. He's actually, I think, a resident of Britain too, but has has or you know heritage from Mauritius, and he combines some of those you know different rhythms. 
I mean, there is influence from Madagascar there too, like Malagasy music is kind of known for some of their kind of unique guitar styles, whatever. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're going to have to leave it there and round it out. Thanks for listening, and remember to uh, support WBAI, WBAI.org. 212-209-2950. Did I mess that up? 212-209-2950. Thanks a lot. Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines.